Is that working now? There we go. Got it. Everyone should have a handout, hopefully, or most of you. If not, you could share. Let's go ahead and pray together. Pray that we'll all give attention to God's word, that we'll all be changed by it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this Lord's day. Thank you for those you brought out tonight. Thank you for keeping us safe as we people drove on wet roads today. We do pray for the people who are driving back to Tampa, some of our members who have gone away for different reasons across the state. We do pray you give them safe travels. And we do pray that we'd be a church that loves you. Lord, as we open up your word tonight, I do pray that we would see what you have said. And as it says things that are challenging to us, I do pray, Lord, that we would not just go with our own default setting and things that we think are true, but Lord, let your word test our thoughts, test our attitudes, test our hearts. And we do pray that you'd give us grace. Holy Spirit, please give us power to understand your word and to live it out. And that we'd give you the glory for everything that happens. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If the, uh, if the main preaching agenda at this church was not to just work through books of the Bible, then it would be easy to select topics to preach on that we just particularly liked. Um, our church is not perfect because we do this, but we just do believe it's the best way to give you, as a church body, the word, to, to a, a regular diet of the word by going straight through it. And as we get to topics that we might not have chosen, there they are. And we have to look them square in the face and see what they say. I would like to talk about Christology. I would, I would like to talk about Christian holiness. I'd like to talk about the glory of God. Those, if I had to pick, that's, that's what I would gravitate toward. Um, judgment is not usually the theme that I think, I want to preach on, on judgment, the Grace Bible Church, on a Sunday night. That's what I want to do. It's, it, that's not my first thought. And uh, this week, if you're going to be downloading podcasts to listen to on your commute, you're probably not thinking, let's see, let me get a series on judgment, on hellfire. That's probably not what you're going to choose. But judgment is something that's in the Bible. More than that, it's not something the Bible tries to skirt around or, or get around or veil. It's not like the salesman tactic that tries to downplay something and then sell it to you, and then after you've bought it, oh, by the way, there's something you need to know. It's not like that at all. The Bible is very open about judgment. It's very clear. It doesn't just show up a few times. It's all over the place. And as we get to the book of Hebrews, we've already seen it. It's, in fact, one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews. Still, many people have the idea that the God of the Old Testament, and you see this all the time, that God of the Old Testament is mean and angry, but then the New Testament, this guy named Jesus comes and he softens this mean, angry God. Jesus came so God could cool down. But the problem with that idea is that Jesus is God, and the Bible describes Jesus as the judge. How did Jesus come the first time when he came down to this earth 2,000 years ago? How did he come? 
Came as a baby. There's a Christmas song that I like. It's a little bit sentimental, but I, I like it. Jesus, it says, he came like a winter snow, silent, soft, slow, falling to the ground in the night to the earth below. And uh, David, I hear people actually have snow where they live, and they might wake up one morning, and it, there might be snow on the ground. And we didn't hear it coming, it just came. That's how Jesus came the first time. He came quietly in the middle of the night in the town of Bethlehem. He came as a sheep to be slaughtered. Someone who, was, who came to be a man of sorrows, came to be mistreated, and came to turn the other cheek. But that's not how he's going to come back. When Jesus comes back, which could be any time, he's going to come back exactly the opposite. Just listen to this description, Revelation 19. John sees the heavens open. He sees a, a, a white horse coming down and someone riding on it. He's called faithful and true. He judges and wages war. If you look at his eyes, they're a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Now think about what he is wearing. He's wearing a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The Word of God exposes us to slaughter. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he'll have the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's how Jesus is going to come back. And that's not an over-description. And if if you had to put it anyway, it'd be an understatement. He's going to be a judge. Jesus is a warrior. No one will be able to... To ignore him, everyone is going to have to answer to Christ. People that you love are going to have to answer to Christ. People that you should have shared the gospel with, they're going to have to answer to Christ. The person you got angry with on the road today, that person is going to have to face Christ one day. Your coworkers are, will have to face Christ. Your friends will have to answer to Christ. Your family members, people in heaven, people on earth, people in hell, everyone is going to have to answer to Christ, the warrior. Last year, around Thanksgiving time, we were in uh, Virginia, and uh, we were taking the metro into D.C., my wife and I, and uh, I wanted, after one of the stops, a, uh, a short Asian man, well-dressed, well-put-together, he uh, stood up by the door, and he had a little clipboard, and I saw some music on it, and he said, let's, said, let's sing together, and it was getting toward Christmas time, so he started singing very loudly and, and in tune, actually, uh, What Child Is This?, which is a great song about Christ. We stopped right at the last verse of the song. The doors opened up, or right, right before the doors opened up, he said, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Doors opened up and he walked out. And guess what everyone did? Phone, iPhone, newspaper, nothing. They did nothing. As if he wasn't even there. They ignored the message. It's actually a great gospel presentation with the song plus the call to repentance. One day there's not going to be any newspaper to hide behind. One day there'll be no iPhone to hide behind. You will have to face Christ at the judgment. No option outside of that. And if we don't know this side of Jesus, then we don't know 
the Jesus of the Bible. We can't call our ministry a Christ-centered ministry if we don't include the wrath of Christ. The verses we looked at last week, they were very clear about a description of an apostate, someone who had fallen away from the faith, someone who appeared to be just like one of us, gone through all the routines, but then fell away, rejected it. Now tonight, we're going to see what that apostate should expect. Last week, we saw the choice of deliberate rejection. Tonight, we're going to see the consequence of that choice, and that is divine retribution. Not a fun topic, but it's what's here in front of us. We need to look at it. Four descriptions. We'll see four descriptions of this divine retribution. Number one, in verse 26, the apostate will enter judgment alone by himself. And remember, this is the particular sin in this context of apostasy. This apostasy is something that's intentional. It's something that's informed. It's something that is indignant toward the person and work of Christ. And it's something that's insulting to the spirit of grace. If a person goes on sinning willfully like this after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then what does verse 26 say? What is the outcome? What will the apostate have to face? Judgment by himself. Because there will no longer be a sacrifice for his sin. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Or very literally, you could translate it, if we willingly go on sinning, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, no longer for sins, does there remain a sacrifice? You've decided to remain in that sin that Christ died to pay for, and there's no greater insult to Christ than that. This person does not have Jesus' righteousness credited to their account. They've rejected the only means of forgiveness. They said, I don't want it. The only way... To God, the way, the truth, and the life, they say, I don't want it. And therefore, they do not have a sacrifice for their sins. That's what this text says very clear. There's no clearer way of putting it. They don't have the blood of Christ on their behalf. He's voluntarily rejected it. He has a resolved position of disobedience and unbelief. Now, back there on the metro train. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee is going to bow. And they ignored him. Why is the world okay with this? Why is the world, if, if you told them, you're going to have to face the judgment alone, why would they be okay with that? Something has happened over time. Hardness of heart, hardening, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness over and over and over again. Over a process of time, they've had to make a number of illogical conclusions about their hearts and about who God is and how they relate to him. One illogical conclusion they made is they say, yeah, all people are tainted to some degree, But basically, we're all good. And you've heard this many times. And so they say, yeah, I think I could face God. I think I could face God alone. I say, I know sometimes I can be a jerk, but overall, I'm a pretty good guy. And if there is a judgment day, I'm not sure if there's going to be, but if there is a judgment day, God's going to remember that I was a pretty decent person. I was smart. I was fun to be around. I was independent. I was happy. I was hardworking. I was all these things. So they conclude this. They say, therefore, every person deserves Good things from God. This is what the human heart does. See, if God doesn't only give good things to people, that means God is what? Unjust. So therefore, because I'm pretty good, if God does not give me good things, that means he is the one who is unjust. This is how we reason with ourselves in our heart. 
They've redefined justice. But when they're challenged on that point, you say, no, that's not justice. We don't deserve these things. What do they say? They say, well, the, ho- the human heart provides the best test of truth. They say, I know deep in my heart that I'm right. And what that means is the heart is the arbiter. The heart is the test. This is, this is the conclusion they come to. And I've noticed a trend lately among college students that we talk to. There's been a shift from people who are dogmatic atheists. You say, I'm going to fight you tooth and nail that you are wrong about your view of God, I, that atheism is true. Now they've backed off, and for a while you saw a, a committed agnosticism where they say, no, there's no way we can, if, no, either way. They were committed to that position, and now it's turned into a lethargic indifference, like, well, if that's what you want, then that's okay. I mean, we can talk about it, but it's no skin off my nose. And now they really are committed to anything. They're really not concerned about any ideas. They just want to go have fun which really is the logical conclusion of this whole thing. They say that they know they're competing worldviews all over the place. No one has enough time in their lifetime to explore all the ideas, so they get discouraged, they get confused, and they pick the option that seems the best and the most convenient to them. And ultimately, the best option for them is who? Or what? Themselves. And they say, if your view of God makes you uncomfortable, then just believe in a different God. Because we are committed to being indifferent about everything. That's what is, what's happening. It's nothing new back in the book of Judges. What is the constant chorus you hear sung throughout the book of Judges? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone was doing right, Jimmy, what was right in his own eyes. It's what the human heart does. We do exactly what we think is best, and we're very comfortable with that. And if anything clashes or provides any tension with that, then we throw that out. So the last conclusion they make is you should do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm somebody else. That's the end of this whole thing. But that's also illogical. Why is that illogical? On a human level, it doesn't make any sense because you can't live for yourself and at the same time make the world a better place, can you? It doesn't make any sense. It's also illogical in how we relate to God because you can't live a life that's contrary to God's expressed desire and expect to somehow be okay with him in the next life or this life. So that's how you reason in your hearts and get to this point where you just say, I don't want any of this stuff anymore. But none of these things are going to help the apostate. He's still going to enter judgment alone. He's going to be there by himself. No animal sacrifice back in the first century was going to help this person. No work of ours was going to help us. Not even the best things that we have done are going to help us. The more we actually rely on our good works, the more judgment we're going to get. Because the more we're relying on our work, the more we're diminishing the work of Christ. The only blood that this person is going to have to offer is his own blood. Christ has not paid for the sins of those who reject him. That is a huge statement. You say, well, that doesn't sound like John 3.16. You say, well, yeah, it does. Think about John 3.16. You see it on billboards. You see it on bracelets. You see it on T-shirts. You see it on necklaces. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not but have eternal life. Wait, there's a word. What what was that other word in there? I can't quite remember what that other word is. Perish. No one's ever had John 3.18 on their bracelet or their shirt. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That person does not have the blood of Christ in their account. They do not have a sacrifice for their sin. They don't. Even John 3.16 presents us with two options, eternal life or perish. Belief or rejection. And now the good news of the gospel is not that we who are truly part of the new covenant, the good news of the gospel is not that we have lived perfect lives. That's good news because we put our faith and trust in Christ and what he has done for us and that is put in our account. And that is how we can face God. When we face God one day, we're not going to do it alone. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you're not going to stand before God by yourself. You will have the blood of Christ pleading your case. Forgiveness of sins belongs only to people who have turned to Christ by faith. So the apostate's going to enter judgment alone. Number two, the apostate should expect judgment. Since the apostate has no sacrifice to cover his sin, all this person should expect is judgment. Look back at verse 26. It says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then what's the result? Then there are no no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, verse 27 gives us the instead. What's the alternative? But instead, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's what the expectation is. We can expect a judgment. Notice it says it's a consuming fire. It's actually a fire of zeal, a fire of jealousy that's going to eat Everything it comes in contact with. That's what the word consume means. It means to eat. And that's the best description of a fire that I could think of. If there's a fire in your yard, which after the hurricane last year, we had a fire pit and we just threw everything we could into that fire pit. Huge amounts of, of uh, yard trash and it was gone. Fire ate it up. You've probably heard of the Great Fire of London in the 1600s. It destroyed over 13,000 homes destroyed 87 churches. This great fire in London destroyed most of the government buildings. About 90% of the people who lived in London lost their homes. So you think about this room right here. Just think about 90% of us all being homeless. That's what that fire did. It ate it up. Everything it came in contact with, it ate it up. This idea is rooted in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there, but Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 18. The prophecy is that neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. The rich, they, they'll be equal with the poor in this day. On the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. Same words here as we have in our text in Hebrews. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. And notice too from this text, that this could happen any time. It says the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That word will, the Greek word behind this word will, is a word that we've seen actually throughout the book of Hebrews, and it means something that's about to happen. Something that's going to happen, but it could happen at any time. It's about to happen. The fury of a fire which is about to consume the adversaries. Psalm 73, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. And the judgment, it's not going to be like, oh, here it comes. It's going to be sudden. I have a tin roof, and if I ever go up there to blow off leaves, I have to be very careful because if there's any drops, 
of water that have splashed up there. Maybe I had a hose. I'm going to be going onto the ground. So imagine yourself on a steep tin roof in the rain, this slippery place, sudden, no way, to, no way to hold on, and you're going to fall. This judgment is about to happen. Jonathan Edwards, when he preached that sermon, the famous sermon, I hope you've, you've heard before, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Heard about that sermon? This is what he said. This is one of the terrifying things he said. At a time of great revival in a church where he preached, where they had this weird idea of a halfway covenant, where they allowed people who weren't really true believers, and they kind of considered them right, but then Jonathan Edwards came in and said, these people aren't believers, many of them. So he preaches judgment, preaches evangelism. He says this, the bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all. He's the only one that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Serious stuff. The arrow of justice pointed right at our hearts, and the only thing holding it is those little fingers that could go any time. It's about to happen. Notice, too, there's no safe middle ground. What will this fire consume, according to verse 27? What's it going to consume? This is the adversaries. The fire is going to consume the enemies of Christ. And here the apostate's true identity is revealed. He's not one who belongs to Christ. He is one of Christ's enemies. Either you're for Christ or you're against Christ. You can't have two masters. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other, etc. You can't have two masters. There's no mediating position. Apostates are enemies of Christ. Now here's the question we have to consider. What does it take to become an enemy of Christ? What do we have to do? Do we have to jump through certain hoops to become an enemy of Christ? Do we have to sign up for it? What is, it's very simple, isn't it? Technically, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to be the person with the bumper sticker that you see out there that there's no judgment day and God doesn't, or, you know, God doesn't believe in atheism. There are all these, all these weird slogans in the back of their car. You don't have to be that. You don't have to have the shirt that says, uh, I, I don't like God. You don't have to have any of that. What do you have to do? All you have to do is be a friend of the world. It says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Friendship with the world is all it takes. And what does James 4 say about friendship with the world? What is it? It is hostility toward God. Friendship itself with the world is what is hostile toward God. Why did Demas desert Paul? Why did Demas desert the gospel ministry? Because he loved this present world. There's the usuals of pleasure, status, riches, money, all these things that people seek. There's also things that we don't often think about, things like peace. Maybe you want safety. Maybe you just want comfort. But this is not what you'd be expected if you turn away from Christ. Which brings us to number three. The apostate will experience greater judgment. Greater judgment. Look at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? That's the question. 
So he's making, making a comparison to the law of Moses, which we've seen was an inferior covenant, which we've seen was only designed to show us how sinful we are, which is shown already to be something that's obsolete and it's been replaced by the new covenant, but still see how serious it was. What was the punishment for direct disobedience to the law of Moses? What was the punishment? Death. A painless death with, with lots of grace involved and you know, comforting you in the way... Without mercy. Death without mercy. No pausing about it. No debating about it. Well, no, let's, let's give him another chance. It was merciless punishment. It was death. Now, our culture is built on second chances, isn't it? Everything we do is built on, oh, there's always going to be a second chance. I was in a col- when I was in college, I was in a class, and my teacher handed me back a quiz. And I was like, oh, pretty good grade. Then I saw a question that I had missed. He didn't mark off. He had missed it too. So I thought, ah, I should probably tell him. He'll, he'll let me go. He was a really nice teacher, actually, a really gracious teacher. It's like, I'll just tell him and uh, he'll uh, let me go. That, that way we can be honest. And I showed it to him after class. He says, oh, he scratched it off and marked the grade. I was like, uh, <laughs> no second chance, no like points for honesty, none of these things. Didn't get like, he was merciless, without mercy. Turn to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, these were God's instructions to the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy 17, look at verse 2. It says, if there is found in your midst, in any of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, if you find a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, how do you do evil? By transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the heavenly hosts, if they became idolaters, if they've done those things which I have not commanded, and if it is told you, and you have heard of it, then you shall go inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true, and the thing certain that is detestable thing has been done in Israel, what are you, what are you supposed to do? Then you will bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, Bring them out to the gates, that is the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. It's on evidence, of course, of two or three witnesses. He who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the, witness, on the evidence of one witness. No mercy. If it's confirmed, you're going to pay for it. No second chance. No, okay, I really learned my lesson, please let me go. No. No second chance. This is under the old covenant, an inferior covenant. See the comparison now. Moving over to the new covenant. What is disobedience to the new covenant? What is the result in? First, what, what is disobedience to the new covenant? Has the text answered that question for us? How do you disobey the new covenant? What are the new covenant terms? In terms of the way we respond to the new covenant. One term, what is it? Faith in Christ. And a faith that's not alone, a faith that puts its full commitment into Christ. If you reject that, if you reject God's perfect promise of grace and forgiveness, the superior new covenant, the one remedy that will cure your sin, if you reject that, you're rejecting the only thing that will set you free, then what do you suppose, the the author asks us, it's a rhetorical question, what do you think? What kind of punishment do you think that person is going to deserve? If under an inferior covenant, the old covenant, if you deserve death without mercy, what about the new covenant? If you reject the terms of the new covenant, what should you expect? The answer is a much, 
much, much greater punishment. Now keep in mind, this passage is not talking about people in a remote tribe who have never heard the gospel. That would be a question we could talk about on a different day. Right now it's talking about church people. This is a church people sin that's being described here. That's what apostasy is. It's something that you come through the church and then you commit apostasy. They came from the New Covenant community. Now, as we get to the verses 30 to 31, you say, what's this greater judgment? We've already seen hints about it, but what's this greater judgment about? Why is it so much greater? What's this mean? See, number four, the apostate will encounter God's judgment. This person is going to face not your judgment, not my judgment, not the government's judgment, no one else's judgment, not Caesar's judgment. It's going to be God's judgment. Look at verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God, of the living God. Now, here's a big question to think about. Where did the concept of judgment originate? Who came up with it? Where did it come from? Is something that happened after the fall and then we thought of it? Or maybe God thought of it because we, we sinned and they thought, what, what, well, if they sinned, if they've sinned, that means I, what should happen now? Oh, yeah, judgment. Where did this concept originate? Who did it originate with? God. God himself. He did not have to retrofit it after the fall. Justice was bound up in God's attributes from eternity past. He's always been just. He's always been holy. He's always had a perfect standard. What did God tell Adam after he put him in the Garden of Eden? Very first time you hear something like this. Genesis 2. Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you can eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? Because in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Embedded in that is what? Judgment. Not judgment that Adam came up with, but from God himself, from his own character, from his own attributes, from his own plan. Judgment was embedded in who God is. Before anybody else, vengeance and judgment most appropriately belonged to the Lord himself. God was the first judge, and he's going to be the last judge. He judged Satan before the creation of the world. The first judgment after the creation of the world was God's judgment of Adam. This is part of who God is. People love to say God is love, and I love to say it too, and I'm very happy he is love, but God also is vengeance. He is justice. Deuteronomy 32 says, vengeance is mine and retribution. Psalm 94, O Lord, God of vengeance. It says it again, God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, render recompense to the proud. Nahum 1 says, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. God is a God of justice. And all of this makes people feel very uncomfortable. They say, well, if that's who God is, then I'm, that's not my God. But if that's not your God, then your God is not the God that's found in the pages of Scripture. 
And this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who's read the Bible. Look at what it says at the beginning of verse 30. I love these words. It says, for we know. We know him. We know this. These are people who have had the Old Testament. They know this. They know They've read it in Scripture. This is a quote from the Old Testament. It's not a new concept for anyone familiar with the Bible. It's not a new concept, really, for anyone familiar with their own conscience. That we know him. We know him who said this. We know the God who said that vengeance is mine. It's embedded in the creation of the world. It's embedded in Scripture. And it's embedded in our conscience. This is the doctrine that we have, as, as the American church, has most aggressively tried to erase, isn't it? It's what you try to erase in your evangelism, too, isn't it? These are the kind of things that we'd like, we'd like to hide. It's much easier to avoid talking about the conquests of Canaan with people on the university campus or your, or your coworkers, isn't it? They bring up the conquests of Canaan and genocide and all these things that the Lord commanded. It's much easier to not talk about those things, isn't it? It's, well, that's just, that's just you know, some Old Testament stuff. And let's just talk about the gospel now. It's much easier to avoid that. So people have formally tried to erase it, but we try to practically erase it without even thinking about it deliberately. We try to erase this. But is God ashamed of his justice? Is God ashamed one bit that he's a God of vengeance? Does he try to hide it? Does he try to say, well, I'll show you that later on, okay? No, he tells us from the very beginning who he is. His vengeance is not a blemish on his character that he tries to hide, tries to cover up, but we shouldn't try to hide it either. Without the justice of God, without the judgment of God, the death of Christ would just be a sentimental act. And that's what you see in the culture today. People try to erase this doctrine of judgment, try to erase the doctrine of of hell, and then they say, well, Jesus still did die, but it's just so he could be a great example to us. So let's just go suffer Two, for something, I don't know what it is, but let's just be like a suffering servant. But without, the death of, without it, the death of Christ would just be a sentimental act. Satan would also like to erase his doctrine. He would love to erase the doctrine of eternal judgment. Uh, when our sons were born, and you, you've had babies, you, you know this, you hold that little tiny baby in your hands. And we've all thought this before. You see this little baby, and you think about everything that you've seen in the world. You think about how terrible the world is. You think about how cruel the people are. You think about how cruel Satan is. You think about the warfare that's going on all over the place. And you think, how in the world am I going to teach this little thing to face all the things that are out there? But you make this commitment. You say, I'm making a commitment as a parent to teach this person, to teach this baby girl, baby boy, to face this. They need to be aware of all the dangers that they face, and I want to train them to fight with God's grace. Satan is a father, too. The whole world is lying in the power of the evil one. It's like he's got them in his arms, and he keeps their eyes closed until it's too late. God's judgment comes suddenly in a moment. They wake up, and it's too late. Satan's greatest strategy. It's also a terrifying judgment. In verse 31, there's no sickness that we could face. There's no disease that we could contract. There's no physical problem. There's no natural disaster. There's no demon. Not even Satan himself is more terrifying than the Lord himself, the living God. Nothing is more terrifying than falling into his hands without the blood of Christ. 
in your account. That's one of the main problems in this world. It's what Paul said when he quoted the Old Testament in Romans 3. There's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of the Lord. It's gone. They've closed their eyes to it. And every generation devises more and more reasons why they should not fear God. It comes in different, uh, comes in different shades, different colors, different sizes, but still more and more ways why we should not fear the Lord. Think about Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. What Jesus told his disciples, I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. Don't be afraid of people who can persecute you. Don't be afraid of people who can make fun of you. Don't be, people who, don't be afraid of people who can make your life difficult here on earth. He says, I will warn you whom to fear. I'm going to tell you about who you should be afraid of. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Nothing more terrifying than falling into the hands of the living God. He's not talking about men here. He's not talking about demons or Satan. He's talking about God himself, the one with the final authority to decide where you go. Judgment on the pages of Scripture. When you talk about judgment, it hits everyone in the room a little bit differently. And I'm going to address three types of people. And maybe you don't fit exactly into this mold. But likely you're in something similar to this. There are those who know, of those of you who know that, or those of you who think that you know an apostate, put it that way. There's someone in your life who is, you've seen, they've been baptized, they've gone up in church, they've been your friends, they've evangelized with you, and then, and then they're gone. And you think that, that person, well, what is he now? We all know people like this. All of us know people like this. Do they have a big uh, letter A on their forehead saying, that's the person you don't have to worry about evangelizing because they're now apostate. Don't worry about that person. Is it that clear? Our issue is that we don't know the hearts of people. What's our job? Is our job to give up on any particular person? Is that our right to do? Is that within our knowledge to do? I'd say no. Our job is to continue in prayer, zealous prayer, and in evangelism, calling that person to repentance. That is our responsibility. God knows the hearts of men. He knows the destiny of men. Ours is to keep on praying and to keep on evangelizing and keep on making disciples. That's what our responsibility is. And there's many, many difficult situations that all of us could bring back up. But I think that's our responsibility. And I think this is also addressed to a person who's a professing believer, but who's ready to give up. Someone who's professed, but you just want to hang it all up. Now, back in chapter 6, the author warned the readers by telling them that a, there was a group of people who had fallen away. I mean, we covered chapter 6 a few months ago. He talked about that group as a third-person group. He's saying, okay, so I'm the author and you're the readers. Remember these people who fell away, who truly fell away? If you have truly fallen away from Christ, and it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. It's not going to happen. So he warned them by saying that. Now look back at this verse, in verse 26. Who is he talking to? Is he talking about a a third-person group that had fallen away? Who is he talking to now? He says, if we, if we, if we continue sinning, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains 
the sacrifice for sins, us. Have these readers fallen away? Not yet. They're still hanging on. He's warning a group of people at this point in the letter who have not fallen away. You say, well, doesn't the author know about eternal security? Does he know about the doctrine of once saved, always saved? Why doesn't he add an exception clause? Why is he speaking so directly? Why is he speaking so harshly to them? Why doesn't he just let up a little bit so that he can be very clear about, well, okay, well, you have been saved, so don't worry about anything else. Don't worry about perseverance or commitment or anything. Why doesn't he just let up a little bit? Give him a little bit of encouragement. Say, it's, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about what I'm saying, actually, after all. He doesn't do that. There are a lot of Bible teachers who would say, that's right, he never does let up, therefore people do lose their salvation. That's how people sometimes approach the book of Hebrews, saying people get salvation and then they lose it. That's not what's going on if you read many, many passages throughout the Bible. That's not what's happening either. That idea comes from a partial reading of the Bible. When you look at the whole teaching of the Bible on this particular subject, I think the answer becomes very clear. And I think that Jesus himself prepared us for these kinds of situations back in the Gospels. And what, what am I thinking of? You already know it. The peril of the, of, of the what? The sower and the seeds, right? Just to review them. There were the seeds that first what? Fell beside the road, right? You preach the gospel to someone. You look into their eyes. It seems to make sense to them. You can even sense maybe some conviction. Like, wow, I'm really understanding this. But then, right in front of you, it's almost like a switch turns on in their brain. And they say, it's like they, they snap out of it. Say, no, no, I, I can't believe that. that. No, no, no. And they walk away. Seed beside the road. They're seed sown in where else? In rocky places. These are people who hear the gospel. It sounds great. They might even display emotion, happiness, and joy. But the message never takes root. There's never any true commitment in their heart. They see how Christianity might improve their life. They might see how Christ might make their life a little bit better. But, and here's the key, as soon as they discover that Christianity involves picking up a cross, involves dying to self, as soon as they find out Christianity actually might make their life difficult instead of easy, they say, I'm done with this. I didn't sign up for this. Rocky places. Their seed sown in thorny places. They've heard the gospel. It makes sense to them. It's attractive to them. But then they end up wanting other things more than Christ. They're caught up with what the world has to offer them. They're caught up with love of money more than Christ. And they would never put it that way. You call them and you say, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. And they say, hope we can talk about you know, the Bible with you sometime soon. And they say, well, I just got a lot going on. I don't, and then you never see them again. And then you see on Facebook that they're just making tons of money and they're pursuing ladies and there all kinds of things are going on. This is what you see. How many of the soils out of the four are real? The good soil. Not because they're great people, but because God had prepared this soil. It's good soil. Why are they good soil? Because they did not just hear the word, they accept the word. They hear it and take it. They don't just pick and choose the parts they like and don't like. They take the whole thing. They don't turn a blind eye to the commitment that's involved. They receive the gospel for what it is, and then the gospel takes root, and what does it do? It produces fruit. It actually makes a difference. It shows that they're real. This is the one soil that is the real deal. And now these four situations that Jesus himself prepared his disciples for, and as we read the gospels, he prepares our own hearts to see these things, and you see them happen. It doesn't take long to be in church 
in church life for just a few years, and you'll see all four of these situations happen. You'll see it right in front of your eyes. Hebrews 10 is officially a warning. He's saying, you guys know what Jesus taught. You guys know that there's just professors, and you know there's people who are the real deal. This is a warning to the visible church. And if it didn't produce any tension inside of you, if there was all kinds of exception clauses, if there was no tension, it wouldn't be a warning, would it? When you're driving down the road, uh, there might be some problems ahead, but don't worry about too much. You'd say, okay, I'm not going to worry about it. No, there's a danger ahead. There's a tree falling. Slow down. This is a true warning. We're not just playing games with your head. So maybe you're this person, you're a professing believer, but you're tired. You're tired of trying. You're tired of the hypocrisy that you see around you in the church. You're tired of your own hypocrisy that you see in your own heart. You say, I just can't do it anymore. I'll just give up. It's going to be much easier to live a consistent, unbelieving life. That was much easier. I don't have all this tension going on all the time, all this fight with sin. I don't have to worry about any of that. I'm just going to go back to where it was easy. But there's nothing out there that's going to be able to satisfy your soul. Everything else outside of Christ is going to let you down. It's going to disappoint you. So that leaves the genuine believer as we receive a warning like this. Say you're someone who's struggling with a particular sin that you just cannot seem to get over. But deep down, you know you're a believer. You know that you have faith in Christ. You know that you've committed your life to him. You know you have confidence. You haven't tricked yourself into it. You just know deep down that you are one of his children. You know you've been justified by faith. You know you're declared right in God's sight, and you know there's no such thing as a re-justification. You know you don't have to get saved all over again, but that's what you feel like. You feel like, man, I've been in the sin. I feel like I just need to get saved all over again. That's how it was at, at Bible camp when I was in college. At the, we didn't fail. At the end of every week, we'd do a campfire testimony. Kids would walk up to the mic, and they'd say, uh, my name is Billy, and I got saved again this year. Every single week. Every single week. Because we're getting saved again. That's what we feel like, though. We feel like I've gone so far down, I feel like the Lord has to save me again. That's crazy talk, though. Here's where we're left. You get a warning like this. If you go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. You hear a warning like that, what do you do with it? Should you wait around for victory? I'm going to let go. I know God can give me victory. I'm just going to wait for him to lower it down in a sheet. And then I'll take it. Is that what you should do? You can't wait around. You cannot say that you'll stop sinning when your circumstances change. Say, well, right now my, right now my circumstances are such a way that I just cannot stop this sin. I can't do it. It's only when I get over to this part of life that I'm going to be able to stop. That's not an excuse either. That's not how you fight sin. A justified life is a committed life. And a committed life is an obedient life. And that's what we're left with as genuine believers. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. We're declared right in God's sight. Now the call is commitment. Obedience. Not waiting around for victory, but following Christ in obedience. Obedience to Christ is the answer, and he's giving us everything that we need to obey. He's given us his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us so that we can have power, not from our flesh, not from ourselves, but power within us to fight sin, to obey Christ, to live fully for the glory of God. That's what he's given us in Christ and the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. That's 
Warning number four in the book of Hebrews. Still one more warning to go as we get to the end of the letter. But let's pray now that we would think about these warnings in a biblical way, that we wouldn't just brush them off, think of them as something for other people, and that we learn how to think about these warnings in relation to the people that we know, people that we're concerned about, and that you would apply it to your hearts so that it would help you to persevere in this Christian life. Let's pray and ask him for his help. Lord, we do love you very much. Lord, we have more and more reasons every day to love you. We see your love being cast upon us all the time, Lord. Every time we wake up, there are new mercies. Lord, I pray that tomorrow when we wake up, there will be new mercies again. I pray that we would see them. I pray, Lord, that we would thank you for them. I pray, Lord, that we would acknowledge that we don't deserve them, but that you love to give us things that we don't deserve. You love to show your grace to us. You love for us to be fulfilled with you because you're glorious. You love us to magnify Christ and have joy in this life, joy in our commitment to him, joy in our obedience to him. And I pray you'd help us to apply this to our hearts. We love you very much and praise in Christ's name. Amen.